Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We're starting a, a new series today that we're calling, we've entitled Unshackled. Um, and I, I think, I, I, I want to encourage you this way um, with this series, is today is kind of focused on those of us who follow Jesus to help us think real clearly about what we communicate out there to the world. But I, I really think that um, next week and the week after that will be would be encouragement if you have unbelieving friends that you've been kind of massaging the relationship with hopes of inviting them to church. Next two weeks may be good weeks to invite them. Just, just a thought. You do with that what you want to. And maybe today's message might be the judge that and you say, ain't no way, Joe. Um, I'm hoping that won't be true. But anyway, I want, us, I want us to think about this. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, kind of focused on thoughts that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia uh, about, about the gospel and the beauty and the reality, the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And so I'd encourage you to, to begin reading it maybe and rereading it and maybe soaping through it over the next three or four weeks. Um, but today before we dive into that letter, I, want to, I just want you to think contextually with me about why Paul even wrote that letter to this particular group of people. And so historians tell us that somewhere in the neighborhood 14, 15 years um, after the resurrection of Jesus and after Paul's conversion, he went on this missionary trip to this area of, of Asia that we would know as Eastern Turkey today. He and Barnabas went on this missionary trip to take the gospel to this part of, of, of Asia. And they leave the region of Syria where they were at and they travel by ship a couple hundred miles to this port in Galatia and then they, they hike about a hundred miles kind of north to this part of Galatia known um, as Antioch. And there they begin proclaiming the gospel. Now, one of the things that they did was they would go and they didn't just go on a street corner and start preaching. That wasn't what, what Paul did. He normally went to the Jewish synagogue in a town. And so that's, that's what he did. He goes into to Antioch. They arrive there um, after that 100-mile hike from the seacoast. And on the Sabbath they go in and, and Paul starts telling the story of Jesus. And, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus and explaining to these Jewish people that why Jesus died on the cross and how God raised him from the dead to conquer both sin and, and, and death and actually fulfill the law of Moses. Completely fulfill it. So that it was no longer necessary to, to keep all of the religious rules because they had been fulfilled in Jesus. And so here's, here's a direct quote in Acts chapter 13 uh, verse 38. Paul, Paul tells them this. He says, brothers, listen. We have, are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness for your sins. And he says everyone, he's talking about both Jews and Gentiles, everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. Some translations use the word justified, but it basically means set free from sin. And Paul says this was something that the law of Moses could not do. 
So Paul comes into this synagogue where they spent, you know, every Sabbath really going over the law of Moses and saying that the law was inadequate and it's been pointing us to something or somebody and that somebody is Jesus and he has come. And you should be excited because you no longer have to be compelled to be overwhelmed by all of these rules. Jesus accomplished it and we can have freedom. We can have freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom that our sins have been washed away, free that we're right with God, freedom from trying to keep the rules that are killing us. And this was good news to people who had spent their lives, both Jews and Gentiles, either trying to be made right with God or multiple gods, trying to be good enough to earn it, trying to work hard enough to, to appease that God. So many of them had become prisoners of religion. And Jesus had come to set them free of that. So that's, that's what Paul's proclaiming. And so there are a lot of people that get really interested in this really quickly. And so they invite Paul back again. Some believe right then. But some invite him back and say, will you come back next Sabbath and tell us more about, we want to hear more about this gospel of grace. But the Bible in verse 45 tells us this. When some of the Jews saw the crowds, the crowds that were coming to this teaching, the crowds that were inviting more of it, the crowds that were coming around the beautiful gospel of Jesus, they were jealous. They were jealous and they, they began to slander Paul and they argued against whatever he said. Anything Paul said, they would argue against it. Paul would preach, they would fuss. They, they, they would heckle, you know. And they finally incited a mob and they drive Paul and Barnabas literally out of town. And in a symbolic display to say, we're not responsible for the judgment that's coming, man. They literally shake the dust off their shoes. And they hike now about 90 miles southeast again to a city in Galatia called Iconium. And there, it's basically, you know, repeat, rinse, repeat, you know, kind of thing. It, the same thing happens again. They go in, they proclaim in the synagogue. Religious leaders there are threatened by this incredible, unbelievable message of grace. Paul catches wind of a plot. There's kind of a rumor that they're going to stone you. He and Barnabas, they're going to take you out and they're going to kill you. So they leave Iconia and they hike another 18 miles to this place called Lystra. Uh, again, just for history's sake, uh, many of you know that Paul discipled lots of people personally. And, and all of us should be, you know, making disciples who can make disciples. Paul, Paul in Lystra gets introduced eventually to this young man named Timothy. Some of you are familiar with Tim. Um, he was one that, that Paul discipled and eventually left as pastor in Ephesus uh, when the church was planted there. And um, this is where Timothy's from. It's his hometown. And some of the religious leaders there. They had followed Paul from Antioch and Iconium now to Lystra. It didn't just happen within the city. These people start following Paul and they incite a mob. And Acts 14 verse 19 tells us this. Some of the Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowds to their side and they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of town thinking he was dead. Somebody goes over and checks his pulse. Yep, dude's dead. We killed him. So the crowd dismisses and goes back in. Paul's out. You know, he's out for the count, out cold. And the Bible tells us that the followers, these new converts that had come to Christ from this proclamation of the beautiful gospel, they gather around Paul. It doesn't tell us that they pray. I think they prayed. Guess what happens? Dead man gets up. He wasn't really dead. But he get, they thought he was dead. But he gets up. Guess where he goes? 
He doesn't go to the next city. He marches back into that city. I love that. Yeah. You know, Paul kind of said, I'll show you. You know, he, 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 Paul comes to me, marches into the city. The next day now, this guy who had been stoned, as they thought, to death, he gets up and he hikes 64 miles. I don't know if he did it in all one day. I don't know. But he, they go 64 miles to another city called Derby. And there they do the same thing. They present the gospel. The Bible tells us many there came to saving knowledge of Jesus. Now here's what's really, really cool that I love about Paul. After that, they stayed there a little while. After that, Paul doubles back and he goes back to those other cities that he had visited. He goes to Lystra and then Iconium and, and Antioch. Paul shows up in town and says, I'm back. Here I am. How you doing? Y'all okay? How's your mom? Everybody happy? I mean, he just, he comes back into town to check on them. And it's just this in, in, incredible thing. You, could, you can read about it in, in verse 21. But it says he goes back to, to take the good news after going to Derb. They go back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And they strengthen the believers. They, they, they come back and they celebrate. They encourage them to continue in the faith. Reminding them. And we need to be reminded of this. Reminding them that you and I are going to suffer hardship at times. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the kingdom of God. He, they remind him of that. And they pray with them. And they, they appoint elders for the church. They don't want to leave them leaderless. Um, and and they, they just trust in the Lord. That is the context of the relationship that Paul has with the churches, the believers in Galatia. Well, some years later, Paul gets wind that they who had been set free from the law, from keeping the rules decided to kind of go back to them. They still believed in Jesus and Paul writes to them as believers. He had given them the gospel of grace but he's heard they've drifted back into keeping the rules. And they, in some ways, they were trying to earn once again what had already been done for them. And not only that, they're asking all new converts who would come to know Jesus. All new converts to, to fall under the law. Now they still believed that Jesus was the son of God. They still believed that, that his death on the cross mattered. But here's basically what they were saying. That, that wasn't enough. Wasn't an, we need a little bit more. You know, we, 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 we need to do some things so we can be sure that we're right with God. We, we got to kind of make it about us. And Paul was very concerned about that. Paul, the tone of his letter, you can tell that Paul is frustrated. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a story about uh, a man who had devoted his life to clean water missions. And um, he had gone in, to, he was in Africa, that was where he felt God called him. And he had the skill set to drill wells. And um, so he would go from village to village. When he would hear about a village where a great uh, deal of sickness was taking place, and especially in the lives of the children, he would head there. And he would find out people were dying, children were dying from the disease because of the dirty water. And he goes in and he explains that. And then he equips them, you know, uh, to get at the heart of the problem. He helps them set up and, and, and drill wells and shows them how to filter water and treat it um, so that they can, it, it can be made safe. 
And he trains them how to change the filters and how to repair the, the pumps and those kinds of things. And eventually he leaves to go to the next village that he's heard about. Uh, he leaves them with the parts to keep the, the pumps running and the filters that they'll need. And so he goes spots around Africa doing this. And one day, kind of like Paul, he decides, I'm going to go back and check and see how they're doing. And village after village, the pumps had broken down and instead of fixing them, the villages just returned to that source of water, that, that well that was poisoning them, that, that was killing them. And the, the, the death rate among kids started going back up. And he's frustrated because he cares about these people. And he, he loves these little children, he loves these villagers, but they've just gone back to doing the things they always did before. Even when they had been set free from that. I, I think that for me that story captured the frustration that I think Paul felt with the church at, at Galatia. They were returning to that which had, had poisoned them. It was this poisonous well of religion. It was a well that doesn't lead to life or freedom. Paul had tried to show them a different way. He had tried to help them experience the freedom found in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But they went back to something that was comfortable. And so when you read Galatians, you will see the exasperation. You see it in, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. Paul says, I am shocked. He said, you, I don't get it. I, I don't understand you, you know, that you are turning away so soon from God. Now that phrase, turning away, is an interesting phrase. Um, it's actually a military phrase. Some translations use the word desert, that you have deserted God so quickly. Um, and it's not just a military term like, well, you deserted your post. It's a military term that means you switch sides and now you're fighting for the enemy. You didn't just walk off and leave your post abandoned. You've actually switched sides and you're fighting. That's the language that Paul is using here. So he's drawing a real clear line in the sand and saying, this just isn't about, you know, I'm not just frustrated with you because you left your post. You switch sides. He says, what you're doing is you're saying religion is better than Jesus. That the system is better than Christ himself. Paul says, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God. Who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. Now you're following a different way that pretends to be good news. But it's not good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. That phrase, twist the truth. Again, some translations use the word distort. Uh, some translations use the word pervert. He's saying, you're, when you do that, you're perverting the gospel. When you start attaching other things to Jesus for salvation, you are perverting the gospel. He, he says, you're being fooled by those who deliberately twist it. Th there were a group of people known as the Judaizers. They, they were deliberately following Paul around for the purpose of adding on to Jesus. They were saying, Jesus is good. They believed in Jesus. But they just didn't believe Jesus was enough. And that was a problem. They would say Jesus is good and we need Jesus. But we need Jesus plus religion. They, they, were, they were saying, hey, we follow Jesus too. We, we love the story of Jesus. We love the sacrifice on the cross. But you also have to keep all of these Old Testament rules and restrictions. So when you come to Christ... If you want to join our church, you've got you to get into this rule system. And oh, by the way, there are over 600 of them in the Old Testament. 
just so you know. You've got to keep those. And on top of that, we've added about 100 to each one of those 600. You've got to keep those too. So it was like, it was this massive kind of thing. And there, the, the Old Testament laws, not, not, not even including what they had created, but just the Old Testament laws, kind of divided into three groups. Different people think of them different way. This is the way I think about them. First grouping of the law is ceremonial law. And these were, these were the kind of laws which food restrictions would come under and, you know, ritual sacrifices, those kinds of things would fall under the ceremonial law. So the Judaizers were saying to these converts, we're glad that you have trusted Jesus. Now you've got to trust in these rules. You've got, you got to keep these things. You need to follow Jesus. Keep the rules. You need to follow Jesus. One of the rules, oh, by the way, is get circumcised. I've, I've read some church growth strategy books. Never seen circumcision as a church growth strategy. Just haven't. You know, they were saying, you want to join the church here, you know, at, at Antioch? Well, you got you, you to accept Jesus and then in, you know, exploring church membership, you got to get circumcised. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, we're doing exploring church membership next Sunday afternoon at 5. There won't be none of that. <laughs> just so you know, in case you were coming to check it out, okay? None, none of that's going to happen. But that, that's what they were doing. They were making all these laws a requirement. Another category of the law is the civil law. And this was the law that God created that was unique for the nation of Israel to make them precious in his sight and a testimony to the nations. That was the purpose of those laws. The civil law. And Jesus came and said, those laws were fulfilled in me. You don't need to keep them. Jesus, the Bible tells us, broke down the barrier. One of those barriers was civil law. Broke down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. He made it clear that that was for the nation of Israel for a season. But it was no longer, it didn't need to be kept. But these false teachers are saying, no, you've got to keep them. It applies to the church today. So you Gentiles need to follow that. And then there's a third category of law, which is the moral law, which is probably what most of us think of when we think of the law. It, it would include the Ten Commandments plus other ethical standards of behavior that we, we can follow. And most of those are still applicable for us today as a standard of behavior to follow Christ. The moral law still has a purpose. Still has a purpose. Uh, the, but the problem, even with the moral law, is if you begin thinking that keeping it somehow saves us, it's a big problem. It becomes a huge issue because it cannot, the keeping of the law cannot save you. And if you're, you're bent on trying to do that, it will kill you, the Bible says. Paul explains it this way uh, to the church at Galatia in, in the second chapter, verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus, not by obeying the law. He says, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because of our, we obey the law. And then he says, for no one will ever be made right with God by doing what? Obeying the law. It's kind of like past, present, future. He's saying, the law is not going to save you in any way. He says it three times right there in that one verse, just trying to drive it home. Get this. No one's ever going to be good enough to be made right with God. The, the law cannot keep us from sinning. The law cannot save us from sin when we do it. Now Paul will tell you that the law can make you consciously aware that you have sinned. 
The law can point out what sin you have committed. The law can tell us because we're sinners we need a Savior, but it can't make us right with God. Nothing in the law can do that. And Paul, Paul begins to explain to them that trying to keep these kind of rules is a perversion of the gospel if you think it gives you salvation. If you think you must have this to be made right with God. If you think it's Jesus plus some good rules. If you think it's Jesus plus, you know, some good human effort. That is a perversion of the gospel. And you're, you're taking Christianity and you turn it into a religion. And Christianity, despite what you may have heard, is, is not a religion. And so Paul is saying to these churches in Galatia, he's just coming straight at them, reminding them what he told them the first time he was with them. Galatians 2.21 helps us understand why Paul is so worked up about this. This is something Paul believed to his core. He said, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If the law could do anything, Paul is saying if there's a way that somehow by our own selves we could work hard enough and be good enough for, to, to fulfill all the requirements, then Jesus didn't have to die. He didn't have to come to start with. Friends, that was, that was a big deal to Paul. That people were, were insinuating that. And that's what he's saying. You're insinuating. It was offensive to him. And so Paul takes it on, you know. This idea of saying, hey, you know, Jesus is a really nice guy. Yeah, you, you, ought to, you ought to love Jesus. But you also need to take this other path. Paul's livid about this. And so in Galatians 3.24 he says, Therefore the law, here's what the law, here, this is the only good thing about the law. The law can tutor us to lead us to Christ. It can instruct us so that we see we need Jesus. That's, that's what the law is good for, nothing else. So that we might be justified by faith. It can only point us there. The law can show us our sin. It can show us our need for faith, to trust that we need a Savior. And so Paul makes this case. He's really just reiterating, just restating things he's told them before. Basically what he's saying is, friends, grace is better than religion. The grace of God found in Jesus Christ overcomes that. Nothing else will. It's about the grace of God. And see, the moment that you add anything else to the message of the gospel of Jesus, to the beauty of salvation alone in Jesus, we're perverting the gospel the moment we start doing that. And we're undermining, according to Paul, we're undermining the great sacrifice of Jesus. That, that word that we use, religion, that word has roots in what it means to be bonded or enslaved to. If, if you pursue a religion, it, you're bonding yourself to whatever God you're trying to get to through your religious pursuit. You're, you're attaching. And so when you, when, when you attach religion to Jesus, <laughs> you're actually attaching to Jesus the very thing that Jesus came to do away with. He came to do away with that because it was killing us. So God sent his son and Jesus came to set us free from those things. Set us free from religion. Here's, here's a very simple definition for religion. I have a simple mind so I think about it this way. And Religion is just simply this. It's man's attempt to appease God and earn his favor by trying to work hard enough to be good enough. That's just, you know, that, that's basically a simple definition of, of what religion is. 
And it's how some of us have thought about Christianity at times in our lives. Some of you may still think that that's what it means to be a Christian is that you're going you're gonna to work hard enough, long enough to be good enough so you can find favor, be made right with God, you know? It's kind of like, you know, I got to do these things and if I do these things and I, and I don't do these things, if I do enough of these things and not too many of these things, then when I get, you know, stand before God, God's going to say, come in because this list is longer than that list. That's not Christianity. That's a, that's a perversion. That's a distortion. It's a lie. And it's a perversion, you know, because, see, Jesus came because we couldn't really keep any of the lists. We're not good enough. And so that's why God sent him and why he suffered and died on the cross because he paid the debt of sin that I accumulated from having one thing on the bad list, on the naughty list. That, that separated me from God. And, and Jesus came to pay the penalty for that so that I, I could be made right with God. So that I could have his right. And not only did he forgive my sin, but the Bible says that my unrighteousness became his righteousness. Theologians use this word called imputed, which basically means our records got switched. That Jesus had this record of holiness and beauty and, and, and favor with God because of who he was. Lived a sinless life. Joe, on the other hand, had a record filled with sin. And our records got switched when he died on the cross. Your records got switched. And what Jesus carried was all of your sin. And he gave me when I trusted him, he gave you when he trusted him, all of, all of his righteousness. And, and that is what our hope is in. That is the only thing our hope is in. And yet these Christians in Galatia... You know, we're piling all this other stuff on. And before you start thinking those poor, pitiful Galatians, we do it too. We, we do it all the time. There is a tendency in us to run back to religion, to, to, to push it back, push ourselves back there. And here's the question that I think we have to ask ourselves regularly to push against that tendency that's in all of us. And the question is this, is Jesus enough for me? Is Jesus enough for you? Just Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? Or do you have some, some toxic need for religion? Do you, do you have some need? There, there are probably many ways, there are three that I want us to think about today. Three ways that I think we say Jesus isn't enough. One of those ways is we're saying Jesus isn't enough and we add religion so that we can get a method for measurement. So we can, we add religion so we can, so we can do this measuring thing. A lot of us like charts and graphs and check boxes and to-do lists. You know, we, we want, we want those things. We want to, we want to build a Build something so we can point to it. So we can say, look what I did. Look, look what I did. Come on, look, look at me. Look what I did. Three-year-old stuff, you know. Look at me, look at me. We, we, that's, we, we, we pursue that. Religion can do that for us. It can help us look at ourselves in such a way that, you know, we see it. 
Muhammad Ali, some of you may remember when Will Smith played Muhammad Ali, that role in the movie. Um, during that time, an interviewer uh, interviewed Ali and asked him, how do you feel about, you know, what do you think about all these religions in the world? And Ali said something like this. He said, you know, there are lakes and there's streams and there's rivers and there's ponds, but they all hold water. He said, you know, religion's like that. It's, it's all truth. And so she, she asked him, she, the interviewer pressed him a little more, said, well, what about your religion? What, what do you think specifically, you know, how, how, do you, how do you live your life, your religion? How do you follow it? And he said, well, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to do more good than I do bad. I believe that if I do more good than I do bad, that when I stand before God, God's going to look at my two lists, and if this list is longer than that list, if this list outweighs that list, that he'll invite me into heaven. And if the bad list is bigger, then I won't get there. So I'm, I'm trying to, to do good. And that really is a perfect definition of religion. It is like the worst definition of Christianity ever, though. It is like the opposite of Christianity. Following Jesus is not that. That's, that's not how our faith works. If you're thinking that it's about, you know, the good outweighing the bad when you stand before God, you're toast, baby. You just are. Because one thing on the bad list will kill you. It will eternally separate you from the God of all creation. That's why he sent his son. The Bible teaches it's through Jesus. It's through grace. F friends, that's why, that's why we worship. Some people wonder, you know, why, why do some of you people get so freakishly emotional when you worship God? Some of y'all, big babies, you cry. You know, you get teary-eyed. You know, some of you raise your hands. Some of you just, I don't understand. Well, it's because, it's because of what Jesus did for us. Because we tried doing that other stuff and it was killing us. And so we, we worship. Because we're free from all that. We don't, we don't have to live in that. That's why we celebrate around here when, what seems like silly stuff sometimes to some people. We, we just, we thank God. We don't come in here every week oppressed that we weren't good enough this week and so we got to come back and you know we got to repent and come down front and blow snot and all we don't have to do that because of what Jesus did we don't have to worry about will I one day be accepted if I if I press a little harder we don't live with the weight of that because Jesus set us free he, he, he set us free and if anybody knew the weight, the heaviness, the oppression of religion, it was the guy who wrote the letter to the Galatians. I mean, he, he knew what it meant to pursue religion wholeheartedly. In, in his day, there was a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, if religion had proteins, Pharisees would be leading in all averages, okay? And Paul was like superstar for that team. He, he said, I'm a Pharisee above Pharisees. That's, he just, I, I'm, I'm one of them and I'm pursuing more than most of them. In Galatians chapter 1, he tells you a little bit about that. Verse 13, he says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religions? How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it, to wipe it out. I was far, don't love the pride here. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. He's, he's saying, I was filled with pride. That's how I thought of myself. 
Now, these, this, this, you know, this team, the, the Pharisees, top of their list and averages, they took those 600 rules of the Old Testament and they would add hundreds of other rules to them. Just to one of the rules. So they take this Old Testament law and so, so that they could be sure that they were keeping them and that everybody else would be keeping them, they would add other stuff to it. And they would say, they take something like the, the Sabbath day and they would, they would add something to it. And, and I just want to say this. If, if you ever get to the place where you're reading something in God's Word and it says, go do something, and you think, you know, my brothers and sisters at River Bluff just aren't doing that very well. I think I need to write a few more rules for them so that they can keep this one thing that God said. There should be bells and whistles and warning lights going off all around your brain. Okay? God does not need you to write a new rule for him or his people. He doesn't need me doing that. You know, but that, that's what the, that, was the, that was what the Pharisees lived for. Writing and imposing rules on other people. So, you know, on, on the Sabbath day, they, the Sabbath day law of commandment says, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. It's different than any other day. It's a day of, of rest. And so they would come up with all these crazy other rules like, okay, approximately seven-tenths of a mile is Okay. But if you cross eight-tenths, sin. You're sinning. And so you could see them, you know, they were all checking their Fitbits, making, I got three more steps, you know, before I'm in sin. And they were obsessed. They did not rest on the Sabbath. They obsessed. They obsessed about the keeping of the law. There were all kinds of laws attached to that. And if, if they did not obey these pharisaical laws attached to the law, they were declared sinners. And they would impose shame and guilt on people. They created these new rules and they imposed them on everybody else. Another one, you could, um, you could ride a donkey on the Sabbath, but you couldn't take his saddle off. Poor donkey had to sleep with a saddle on because some stupid rule a Pharisee came up with. You could not eat an egg that a hen laid on the Sabbath. And not only could you not eat it on the Sabbath, but you couldn't eat it the day after the Sabbath either because that hen had worked on the Sabbath. So you had to, to destroy it. It's not in the Bible. That was something that man made up. That because they were so desperate to try to figure out how can I make you keep this one rule. Now we laugh at that. We think, man, them people, what, what were they thinking? But if you look back at church history, man, we have done a wonderful job at that. I have done, at times, a wonderful job at that same thing. Weird stuff. You know, crazy stuff. You know, there, there's a teaching in, in the New Testament that we should honor, that we should lift up, that we should pursue. You know, good principles in the New Testament ab about life. W one of them is about about modest dressing, about dressing modestly. And we should, we should honor that and do that. But somebody comes along, they read that passage of Scripture and they think, yeah, my brother and sister, they're just as bad as dumb as a doornail. I need to write a rule. And so I think women shouldn't wear pants in church. They should just wear dresses. And they need to be this long and they need to be this baggy. And then we can, that's modest dressing. 
I mean, that's, that's, and when you start that, it just keeps going and going and going. And you add all of these things to something that's simple and beautiful. God says, think about dressing modestly. There's a passage that tells us that, you know, that we, we need to guard our hearts from, from our hearts as the wellspring of life. And we start imposing all these rules and people start living in shame, you know. See, when, when we do this, one of two things happen. When, when we impose these rules to try to, to focus us, one of two things starts to happen in the human soul. We either, we either grow hard-hearted towards God because we can't keep them, or we become self-righteous. And we, we, we spend our time saying, kind of look at me. If you live under that kind of oppressive religious spirit long enough, that's what's going to happen. So yes, the Bible says guard your heart. But then people start coming along and saying, well, that means you can't go to this movie and you can't listen to this music and you can't have cable and TV in your house and all these other rules that were not a part of that. Again, friends, please, please hear me. It's okay to have rules in your house. Parents, you, rules are good. It, it's, it's okay to have rules. It's good for schools and organizations and societies to have rules. But please, for the love of God, don't attach your rules to the gospel. Don't tell your kids, if you break mama's rule, Jesus ain't going to love you. Don't, please don't attach your rules to the gospel. Because that's where, that's where people start separating from Jesus. Because they associate man-made rules with Jesus. And when they can't keep the rules, they figure, can't keep Jesus either. So they walk away from that. And people aren't really walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from man-made rules. And part of what it means to be a body who loves the gospel is to point that out. To point out the brokenness in that. And the Bible says don't get drunk. And so people say, well that means you can never take another drop of alcohol. I mean, we, we do all these rule writings thinking that somehow we're blessing God. Now, I, I want you to, uh, the scripture's not going to come up. You can go home and look at this. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus confronts this head on. He goes into the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And everybody else that's at the dinner, they're over here washing their hands. Because the Pharisees had a rule that you needed to wash your hands before you eat. Jesus went straight to the table. And he says, hey, when do y'all come over here and pass me the taters? You know, I need, some, I need some of that lasagna. Pass the lasagna. You want some? You want some of this roast beef? He just starts eating. And, and one of the Pharisees said, you didn't wash your hands. Now, when you read that story, it doesn't say this. But I am convinced Jesus was picking a fight. The Pharisee kind of said this. He kind of said, the Lord said you should wash your hands before you eat. And you can kind of see Jesus kind of say, I don't remember saying that. I think I'd remember if I said that. You know, pretty sure I didn't say that. And, and Jesus, Jesus just goes on. And, and see, he, he's saying... I'm not about your system. I came to replace your system. I'm going to stand in opposition to your rules and your system. So quit connecting them to me. Jesus confronts it. Head on. That's not what I'm about, he says. I came to set people free from that. 
from your rules because it's exhausting them. And it is dividing them from their relationship. It's keeping them from God. So we're going to stop that. Is Jesus enough for you? Another way that we say Jesus isn't enough for us and we push into religion is so that we can have a feeling of superiority. Now we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that, but it's just the truth. That's what religion does to us, is religion will allow us a pathway so we can feel superior. And any time that happens, here's what's gone on. You've compared yourself to somebody else. You, you've, you've tried to do something to keep a rule so you can look at somebody else who's not keeping it as well and saying, I must be right with God. And so we, 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 we here's what happens when, when you get on that track. It will suck the joy of Christ out of you and everybody around you. It will just rob everyone of joy when you start feeling better about yourself because you did something that you think makes you right with God. It shows up in really strange ways. I remember years ago being in Walmart and a lady in our church came up to me um, and she, she apologized. She actually apologized for something you did, Kurt. Kurt's here today. <laughs> Kurt said, that was a long list, wasn't it? The, um, well, Kurt and I, you know, we would banter sometimes. And, you know, he, one day, I don't remember what it was, but he said, Hey, Joe, what, what, when is, what are we doing there? And uh, he said, stand up. So I stood up and I started talking. And Kurt said, no, Joe, I said, stand up. And people laughed, you know, they thought it was cute, vertically challenged, I get it, you know. And every now and then I would remind him about, you know, his follicle challengedness and, you know. But she apologized, she said, I just don't think that should be done in church. And she went on to tell me, you know, that, you know, she didn't, that wasn't her experience in church where people kind of laughed and there was joy and fun and, you know, relational stuff like that. Some of you grew up in environments like that. You know, the two rules of a Baptist church was, when you come to church, don't smile and don't run. You know? Where do we get that stuff? And, and why do we attach it to Jesus? See, this, this superiority stuff, you can tell it's settling in when you start taking yourself way too seriously. Now, I'm not talking about not being willing to sacrifice for Jesus and for the kingdom. But I'm talking about taking yourself much more seriously than you should. You know, when, when we become more concerned with the appearance of it all, in the ceremony, in the pomp and circumstance, when we become more caught up in that stuff than we do in relationships, when it's more about rituals than relationships, we're sunk. We, we get in trouble. See, Jesus came to set us free from all of that. But is Jesus enough for you? Third way that I see us saying Jesus isn't enough and turning to religion is so that we might have some modicum of comfort. We, we, want, we want a sense of comfort and we think if I can, if I can get a, a checklist and get to the end of that, I'll can, I can feel comfortable in my faith. If I, if I can just keep that list, I, I'll feel a little better about myself. I'll, I'll feel like I'm... Here's the problem with that. You begin to put your hope in effort. You, that's, you just be, now grace is not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to it. But it can't be about effort. 
You're not going to receive grace through your effort. Let me close with this. How many of you remember 1982? A few of you. Okay. Some of you really are old enough to remember 1982. In, in 1982, something horrendous happened um, in Chicago, and um, people started dying. Uh, and it started with, it, it became uh, known as the Tylenol murders. It, it literally transformed the way over-the-counter medications are, um, are packaged got packaged very differently after this. And what happened was someone went into stores and laced random bottles of Tylenol with potassium cyanide. And the first murder took place of a, of a little 12-year-old girl whose parents gave her Tylenol because she was complaining of cold-like symptoms. And to bring her comfort, they gave her this Tylenol and she died a few hours later. Later in the day, a postal worker who had some aches and pains had taken some Tylenol, um, and he died. And his family gathered at his house, and from the, just from the pain of going through all that, uh, one of his brothers and his wife, his brother's, this brother's wife, both took Tylenol just as an act of covering up, comforting their pain, and both of them died. So eventually, seven people died from this, this Tylenol poison. And investigators were frantically looking and they finally made the connection that all seven of these people had taken Tylenol. So Tylenol bottles start being yanked all over the nation, you know, off the shelves. Um, and in Chicago, because they weren't sure whether it had been something that happened in the plant or whether it had been something that had happened in stores, they start going through the streets blasting over the bullhorns, throw your Tylenol away. People are dying. It's kind of a radical thing for the police to do, but th th they did that. And as I was reminded of that a few weeks ago, something I was reading, I thought about this as I was getting this message ready. That's what happens, friends, when we attach religion to the gospel. You know, people take Tylenol for comfort from pain, for, for help in getting through the day. And people have come looking to churches for Jesus. Looking to Jesus for hope. God provided the gospel to take away the pain of the world. The pain of oppression. He, he, he told us about the beauty and glory of heaven that is for everyone who would receive Jesus. And that is what our hope is in. But too often we poison the beauty of the gospel with religion. And so the very thing that people need to come into a relationship with God, people come looking for a little hope, needing freedom from shame and guilt, so often they show up in a church and we just move them from one prison to another, from one poison to another. And, and when that happens, we've perverted, the, we poison the gospel when, when we do that. So, many of you who have been here for a long time know this, but if you're kind of new, I, I'm going to be really, really clear. Here at River Bluff, our only hope is in Jesus. That's it. That our only hope is in Jesus. It's not in ourselves. 
It's not in some rules that we can keep up. It's not about working hard enough to be good enough. Now, please hear me. We're going to seek to live lives that honor God because he's good and right and beautiful in all of his ways, but it's done out of a relationship, not out of a rule. It's done because he first loved us and we just want to express our love and gratitude back to him and we just declare he's smarter than all of us put together. And he says this is the way to life. And he gave us that hope in Jesus that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for you and for me. That one day it's going to be true and we're going to stand before God every last one of us. But on that day it's not going to be about this list or that list. It's going to be about one list. God's going to say, what would you do with my son Jesus? Just one list. One question on the list. What, what, did, what did you do with my son Jesus? How did you respond to him? And what he has done for you, not what you can do for him. Did you trust him? Did you believe that he was God? That he's my son, he's God in the flesh? Did you repent of trying to save yourself, make yourself right with me? Did you repent of all that silly religious stuff and just totally trust him with your life here and with your eternity? Have you done that? Have you trusted in what he's done for you? Let's pray. Lord, we come in this moment declaring to ourselves, first of all, Jesus is enough. Jesus, you are enough. And then we tell it to each other. Jesus is enough for you. No matter what you've done, who you did it with, how long you did it, no matter how horrible or wretched it might have been, Jesus is enough. He's enough to forgive that. He's enough to make you right with God. He's enough to forgive your sin. He's enough to help you overcome that past. Jesus is enough. So you don't have to work harder at being good enough to come to God. And maybe you're here today and for the very first time, the reality of the beauty of the gospel is broken through. Broken through your religion or your tradition. And maybe you just want to trust Jesus now. I say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you and you alone for my salvation for my eternity, for my hope, for my life here. And you can just tell him, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you're the son of God and I believe what you did on the cross is enough. So I give up. I give up on pursuing it my way. And Jesus says, anyone who calls on his name that way will be saved. Saved from the power of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, forever his. You don't have to live in shame or walk in it any longer. Maybe there's stuff in your past that has been eating you alive.
and you keep going through this cycle of trying really, really hard and failing, giving up. Jesus wants you to hear today, quit trying so hard and come to me. I'll forgive your past. I'll empower your present and I'll make your future beautiful. Just come to me. Maybe you've been one who has trusted the Lord Jesus, but like the Galatians, you've started adding other things onto Jesus so that you could feel superior without saying it, or you could sometimes have some kind of measuring stick to see how good you're doing. And maybe today what you need to do is repent of that and say, Jesus, you're more than enough for me. I don't want those things in my life. Don't let them guide me any longer. Let me just be guided by you. I want to trust you, Lord, a little more each day. And so, Lord, we come. We come because of the gospel now to worship you. To worship you, giving you our hearts back, sacrificing ourselves back to you, saying we want more of you and less of stuff in this world and less of pretense and less of rules. We want more of you. We want the beauty of following you, Jesus, in all your glory. And we want to be people who really proclaim that through the way we live our lives, filled with joy. We come now, God, generously to give back to you your tithes and our offerings. Not to keep the rule, but because we're grateful, God, for the way the gospel has transformed us. And we want the world to know. And we believe you're doing something through this church. And so we want to be a part of that work. So we give. We give you what's yours and we give even what's ours back to you. And we give you our hearts now, Lord. Take them. We want to celebrate you in these closing moments of this service. Just giving you thanks for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.